1: How do peripheral places assert the centrality of their identity? Why are fanciful events like dreams and myths useful narrative elements for identity construction and arguments about authority, legitimacy, and rhetoric? In Authority and Identity in Medieval Islamic Historiography, Persian Histories from the Periphery, Dr. Mimi Hanaoka, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Richmond, offers a broad and deep dive into the importance of events that never happened, to Persianate locales seeking to center themselves within the Islamic world and the Islamic story. In our conversation, Mimi and I touch upon the appearance and nature of local histories, the important role of fiction and fantasy in constructing local identity, and a few of the more interesting stories she encountered in her research. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Aaron Hagler from Troy University, and thank you for listening to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. Now to our topic. Welcome, Mimi, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me, Aaron.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, So I loved reading your book, which is called Authority and Identity in Medieval Islamic Historiography, Persian Histories from the Peripheries. I love that rhyme, too. Um, And I love it because of the way it used what positivist historians would call the useless stuff, things like dreams. (laughs) Uh, you know, dreams, myths, fanciful stories, uh, all things that we can positively say represent unreal events, uh, and also items of what might generally be considered to be of limited interest, like the etymologies for place names, and descriptions of local sacred spaces, spaces and beautifully mine those resources for insight, and I'm going to quote you here, uh, insight into identity, rhetoric, authority, legitimacy, and center-periphery relations. Uh, this kind of reading of texts with the idea that it 's all wheat and no chaff it 's near and dear to my to my own approach, but before we get into the book uh, i 'd like to take a moment to just get to know you and to give our listeners a chance to get to know you. Can you tell us uh, a bit about your scholarly journey, you know what brought you to where you are today as a scholar?
2: Yeah, I think it was um a, a lot of happy coincidences and a bit of a meandering journey. I majored um, undergraduate in religion and philosophy, um, not knowing exactly what I would do. I was open to doing a lot of different things, but I ended up starting day one of a master's program um, for something completely different right after college in philosophy of religion at Columbia And I had the great serendipity to stumble upon a class that sounded fantastic, for which I was completely unqualified, um, (laughs) called uh, medieval Islamic historiography, or maybe it was just Islamic historiography. Um, And I was coming from a background where I had not taken a single class um, in Islam as an undergraduate. Um, so I just went to the professor. I made an appointment before the first day of classes. I knocked on, um, it was a co-taught class with two professors. And I knocked on one of the professor's doors and we had an appointment. And I kind of made my case for why I should be permitted uh, to take a class that was completely above my pay grade. And I'm not sure what the professor thought. Um, or both of them thought. They were both fantastic. It was Negin Yavari and Dick Bullet. Uh, at Columbia. And, you know, Yabari said, okay, well, you're not really the kind of person we're targeting this course for. But she handed me some huge Oxford Islamic studies volume. And she said, well, if you read this by Monday, um, I'll let you you come to the class. And I'm not sure if she was calling my bluff, or she was being sincere. She was wonderful. She said, you know, don't write in it. It's my only copy. Um, Read it, learn it. And if you can stomach it, show up to class on Monday.
1: That brings back so many graduate school memories. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it was um, it was perfect. It was exactly what I needed. It was somebody, a mentor who trusted me, who was willing to give me a shot, even though she'd never met me before. Um, and Dick Bullet was just as welcoming. And he said, you know, he, I don't think she told him that I was wholly unqualified to take a class in historiography, having never taken a class in history. Um, but it was life changing. It was just fantastic. And I was in a class with, you know, very advanced graduate students. And so I was really treading water um, desperately and ferociously for a semester. But that really changed the course of what I wanted to do. I realized I could make a contribution uh, provided I worked hard enough. and, And this was where I think I want to do it. And so I really overhauled what I was doing from my master's. I requested and was generously granted the possibility of switching advisors. Um, And so I had a master's at Columbia in religious studies and Islam. And then I taught uh, high school for a year, um, kind of thinking about what I would do next um, in Hawaii which is beautiful, um, but I realized I would lose every single scrap of Arabic if I didn't leave the islands. Um, it was too beautiful and the surf was too good. And so I enrolled in the Center for Arabic Study Abroad program, CASA, at um, at AUC, at the American University in Cairo. And that was a really phenomenal experience studying Arabic and living in Cairo, living in Egypt. And that um, cemented my desire to return and, and pursue a PhD, um, which I ultimately did at Columbia and then, um, Persian, I got back and I said, Hey, you know, I, I, I learned Arabic. I did it. You know, I did what you said to do. And they're like, great. Now you have to go learn Persian. Said, okay.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> why not? Yeah. You know, why not?
2: Yeah. Um, but that was really, um, wonderful. I think I had these phenomenal mentors who were all completely different, but they shared, the common quality of being incredibly generous and allowing me to work not just with them but with other scholars too. So, I worked with um, Professor Peter On, who just recently passed away earlier this year at Columbia, with Dick Bullitt, with Hossein Kamali, with Nigi Nyavari, with uh, Mehti Hwarami at NYU. The really just wonderful professors who were encouraging um, and encouraged me to to pursue things. And that has kind of meandered and and led me to where I am
1: today. I relate a lot to that experience. I had a very similar experience. And I think, uh, you know, at the end, it all comes down to finding those mentors who just sparked our interest. And I had some of those myself. So I definitely relate to that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They were just so key. And that was the best advice my undergraduate mentor gave me. Um, You know, he said, if you're going to go to a PhD program, just find a great mentor you know, he said, that can make you or break you. Um, And and it really was true. I just found some wonderful, generous people who are willing to give me a shot.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Um, well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, let us uh, get to the book. Yeah. Um, like, like I said earlier, the approach of this book is what fascinated me first, and why I, I wanted to interview specifically for it uh, for the for the podcast. What was it that brought you to this approach, focusing on things like authorial purpose and intention, and like we said, all of those unreal elements for looking at history and, and focusing on those elements.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think what brought me to them was a couple different things. One was I initially was always intrigued at the intersections of things, you know, these hybrid identities, hybridity, uh, notions of bilingualism in texts had always been just generally interesting to me, but particularly in the texts that I ended up choosing, which were uh, local histories of places. So histories of towns or provinces or cities, which was my mentor, Dick Bullitt, did a lot of work on local histories himself. So I think I was um, helped to be ushered in that direction in terms of the genre, but I was really struck in how the Academic sources that use them uh, tended to dismiss these portions as not helpful, and I think if you are trying to reconstruct the tax records or figure out irrigation patterns or understand patterns in dynastic rule, uh, they're not as obviously useful. You know what? How do we? What does it matter whether somebody dreamed about Muhammad, or mm. what does it matter? Uh, that somebody has a kind of fantastic etymology uh, but I was convinced that they weren't garbage they surely they could not have been junk and surely if they were random they wouldn't have survived a lot of these texts are the product of many hands they've been translated they've been edited uh, and the fact that they survived until the the most recent um, manuscript that we have suggested that they were more than just coincidence. So I was really intrigued about how can we ask the right questions uh, to make use of them, Um, accepting that they're not useful for certain things like tax records or irrigation patterns, but they must be useful for telling us about some things. And so I think a lot of it was trying to figure out what might they be alluding to, um, what what was the tenor and the pitch of the intended or real audiences that these authors editors, and I use author in this broad sense of people who are involved in compiling and producing the text, what their intention was and who their perceived or real audiences were
1: good you know i i like I like texts like this too um, i don 't read Persian myself, but I like those. Texts that are you use the word hybridity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of texts that exist within kind of estuaries, places that exist between, yeah. or or on the you know borders of regions. Yeah. Um, and so you were looking uh, specifically at these local histories, right? Uh, yeah, um, mm-hmm. what can you talk uh, before before you talk about why you chose to look at those texts specifically? Uh, maybe talk about uh, what they were, who wrote them, why they wrote specifically local histories and, and why they're important.
2: Yeah. Um they're a really interesting genre and they're such a mixed bag. And I think that's why a lot of scholars are have been and, and understandably and rightly so wary of making overall general comments about them. Uh, They range, we call them local histories, but really it's a whole grab bag of different kinds of genres that we lump together under this umbrella of local history. So they run the gamut from biographical dictionaries, which are name by name entries of notables from a local town. They might be um, something like the tabakat genre that kind of go through generations of important kind of religious, scholarly or social VIPs of a town. They might also be a more um, universal history, kind of going from the beginning of time up until the present day, or they might be dynastic, going about um, describing the different dynasties that have ruled in an area or kind of loosely analytic going through the different eras. And most of them are some combination of all of those. So as a genre, they've been a little, they are tricky to handle. Um, and so part of it was part of the problem was solved for me, um, when i limited myself to texts from the 10th to 15th centuries and i can talk a, a bit later about why i think that era is really important but when you when i limited myself to you know texts that are generally that are not purely biographical dictionaries, and in um, from what we will loosely call Persian or Persianate areas, there were only so many that fit the pattern um, that were histories of a province or a city or a town. So um, it was trying to find texts that have the closest family resemblances within a very large umbrella genre that is really idiosyncratic and heterogeneous
1: okay um great why did you limit yourself to the 10th to 15th centuries what was it about that time period that you know that that grabbed you or made you think that this was a good uh, place to explore
2: yeah I think what is really interesting is that it's around this time you know maybe there's a lot of debate about this but maybe roughly around the year 1000 um, we might say that it, it Islam and in this loose Persian, Persianate area reaches a critical tipping point that we have a, a significant number of Muslims, possibly a, a majority. It's hard to really say um, the, my mentor, Dick Bullitt, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a book which a lot of people have challenged, but we haven't really come up with good alternatives Um, he looked at naming patterns saying that, you know, when somebody changes their name from something like Manu Chahr to Muhammad, we might say that there are, you know, notable changes in um, the lives of individuals who are beginning to identify in in significant ways as Muslim Mm -hmm. beyond, you know, was the area conquered or is there a mosque there? Um, So there is this kind of tipping point that happens around Um, maybe the year 1000 as a critical point of conversion. In addition, um, you also have these city histories and regions emerging. They become a really uh, interesting and important genre around this time. In addition, you also have local dynasties emerging in a very significant and powerful way um, through Iranian or Persian lands. So it's this kind of culmination of several different things occurring around this time, both in terms of um, Islam permeating the region, in terms of local dynasts emerging who are under nominal caliphal control in Baghdad, but are kind of doing a lot of their own thing and having their own rebellions. And this genre becoming important, um, as well as the kind of the sibling genre of the pure biographical dictionary uh, becomes really important around the 10th century as well. So it's a kind of a cascading effect of several things occurring, um, which led me to work on this
1: time period. Okay. Um, with these local dynasties that emerged in Persia, you know, from the 10th century onwards, did they patronize this kind of scholarship? Was that kind of the impetus or was there something more to it?
2: Some do. Yeah, some do. Um, some less so. So again, it's it's so hard to speak um, of these texts as a genre. And some of these local histories we know Um, who wrote them at least in the original instance so some of the texts that I work on say had were originally written in Arabic but survive only in a later Persian translation some of them identify the reason some of the authors identify who they are and the reasons why they wrote them um, as well as their patron some are anonymous uh like it's frustrating and anonymous and so some of them were written for dynastic patrons some were not but what's interesting and what struck me as curious is that these are um, to some degree very solipsistic texts that they are concerned um, with their place um, with that town with that city with that province but other rulers other dynasts other provinces only enter into the horizon um, insofar as they interact in some way with that province. So I don't want to overly exaggerate the significance of, you know, center versus periphery. I don't think that binary is necessarily the best way to think about things, but um, there were multiple different kind of concentric circles of centrality. And what these texts do share is this desire in some ways to embed themselves as central places, even though they might um, intellectually perhaps or physically be on what we might consider um, the margins of Islamic empire and civilization.
1: Okay, awesome. Let's uh, get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts. Yeah. How, how do they do that? And how do you use the texts to draw conclusions about that?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. Some of them are, um, you know, we know more about, for example, there's a, you know, Tariqa Tabaristan. It's a region on the Caspian. We know that it was, um, the text describes the region in kind of consistent ways as a haven For Alids, um, and I use Alids in the term very broadly, um, people who claim descent from Ali ibn Abi Talib, not necessarily identical um, with Shia, although there were Shia there. Some of these regions, though, are towns, you know, Behak is, it's, backwater is not the right word, but it is not um, a metropolis, and it is not a kind of central Place it was a it's a tax district, um, but it's it lived in the shadow of Nishapur, for example. So some places may more obviously be able to lay um, a claim to importance in a region. Some are kind of these smaller second cities that are trying to assert why they're important. Um, and what really struck me in the story with which I opened the book was this um, claim that. About 200 years after the Prophet Muhammad died, he reappeared in Bukhara, which is in present-day Uzbekistan. Um, And the story in the text kind of treats this episode as if it really happened. Um, And it's only as you read it that you realize this happened um, in the dream of a local individual. Um, and it's a really interesting dream because a local individual uh, recites the Quran for Muhammad and Muhammad remains silent over the course of the three days uh, when somebody recites the Quran for him, um, taking essentially, right, this is it's a silent ascent that the recitation is correct. So it's this really fantastical episode and I was really struck by it. Why, why would somebody include this in a text? Um, and what I try to argue is that people found ways for arguing and embedding the centrality of their place in the broader scope of Islamic history in ways um, that are more creative but are profoundly powerful through dreams, through etymologies, through the burial or visitation of kind of religious VIPs, um, people who descend from Muhammad, um, Include or are um, part of the generation of the companions and the people who followed the companions. Those who you know lived within a lifetime of Muhammad, the Sahaba and the Tabi'un, um, having these bodies while they were alive or once they're deceased to come to their town become really important ways of claiming a type of belonging. Um, And when I say claim, I don't mean that facetiously. I I think that there are important ways in which these texts argue for lineage, for belonging that are supra biological types of lineage, um, where the texts are able to almost collapse time and place and bring Muhammad to this place. Um, you know, a city on the far eastern fringes of the Islamic empire in a very powerful place that seems to be arguing for the legitimacy of the Quran recitation, whatever uh, recension of the Quran was recited in that place at that time.
1: One of the things I remembered that stuck in my mind about that story that I just found actually quite funny was that when Muhammad reappeared, he was wearing a, a Persian style white hat. Yes. Yes.
2: Right. And so there are these really interesting details that emerge from the story where, um, it's not really about the, in some ways you know you could argue it's not there's hadith that talk about you know if you, if a pious muslim sees muhammad in a dream it truly is muhammad because satan cannot take his form and there are other um, these are canonical hadith hadith also that talk about you know the dream of the believer is you know 146 part of prophecy or some fraction there there hadith that render this as different fractions of prophecy but um as some part of prophecy, and it almost seems like in some of these um, texts, Muhammad is a signifier of the the of the veracity of the incidents, um, but. Almost the focal point when I was reading it, for me, seemed to zoom in on the place of Bukhara, um, almost less on Muhammad himself as the prophet, but more on the place and the embeddedness of the place.
1: Which so, makes yeah. sense. I'm oh, sorry. Go
2: yeah, ahead. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it really is about the, um, the local belonging and the embeddedness. Um, in, in a strange way, Muhammad almost seemed to recede a little into the background.
1: Well, and I guess in the service of of a book that is the history of Bukhara, that might be what you would expect
2: mm-hmm yeah um, and and you can see why if you're trying to reconstruct the more positive his, positivist history these are not the kind of stories um, that gain traction right they don't tell us about who was in you know who was ruling I think they can tell us uh, maybe things about was there some anxiety perhaps about the recitation or the recension of the quran in that place at that time and nearby um, it does seem like there is a potential um, variant, right, Quran um, tradition. So I think they can tell us things about things that we agree matter, like the Quran, um, but they are less obviously useful. um, And I think that's why they've been underutilized.
1: So why do you think uh, these different localities, which might otherwise be considered minor localities, um, seek to assert themselves in, in a similar way? I think you talk about five different histories Uh, in depth right so what was it about the creation of a local history with these fanciful if we want to use the word fanciful i think that's a good word we want to with these fanciful elements why do they do that what is it that the goal of the authors or the goal of the patrons is in the uh, either the patronage or just the creation of these local histories
2: yeah i mean and here you know i this is where I begin um, to speculate. And I think other scholars have also said, you know, this is evidence of of local pride. I don't think that's untrue. I think that's correct. But I think it's it's more than that. I think we have this genre blossoming at a time where uh, you have also new Persian becoming an important language, right? You have the Shah Na-Meh, um being composed around this time. It's at a time, I think, when you have people writing in Iranian or Persian lands where Um, there is no sense or there is less of a sense of um, almost... Defensiveness, right? That these are Muslim Persians who are carving out an important role for Muslim Persian places, and I think it it, it manifests in different ways. Um, you know, Tabadistan had long had a tradition of rebellion, of revolt in this Caspian region, which is really different from the way it manifests in a place like Khome, um, more inland that. Um, was conquered very early by Arabs and um, later becomes a kind of haven for Alids and for Shia, but are also known for that pretty, it seems like pretty early. So I think the, the direct impetus in the case of each text might be different, but there are um, certainly these, the, I think it's coming in a moment where you have um, a population that is both Muslim and Persian that is articulating its sense of belonging in Islamic history, despite the fact that there is a, um, an uncomfortable reality that this, the perceived heartlands are in these Arab lands, right, of Arabia, of Damascus, um, and you have these texts contending and asserting and explaining why these are also indeed very central places in the landscape of Islamic civilization and
1: history. So basically that, that it tries to create both a local history, but also to place places like Home and Bukhara into the center of the Islamic narrative, even though historically speaking or historiographically speaking, even they're not really.
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, and I think because you have this rise in local dynasties, which are really operating nominally under caliphal control, but in practice are really um, highly autonomous. Right? If we look at kind of political history and numismatic evidence, they're really operating um, in 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 conversation, in dialogue, in negotiation with these ostensible centers of power too. And so you really do have these areas coming into their own um, as their own places with their own history with their own traditions as well
1: And as such, they deserve a visit from the Prophet Muhammad or from one of the Sahaba or from a descendant of the Prophet or something like that.
2: Absolutely. Yes. And you have these biographical dictionaries, um, both in Arabic and in Persian, developing around this time. Right. That become important genres that talk about uh, who's who and these religious VIPs, too. And these people are dispersed. Right. I mean, there's hadiths that say, you know, Travel, right? Search for knowledge even onto China. And so you do have, in some cases, um, people really traveling like we, you know, Hassan al-Basri comes up in the um, history of Sistan. Um, we do have evidence that he was in that area at that time. It's probably not because of that kind of veracity or facticity that he is discussed in the history. It's more because he becomes a really important, pious early figure in Islamic history that he becomes more central to that um, origin narrative of Sistan.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, your uh, second to last chapter uh, yeah. make a comparison. Uh, you kind of leave the Persian histories aside for the moment and you jump over to Anatolia. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, and you found uh, that... The the histories there, the local histories there were constructed differently. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that um, what that comparison brought you?
2: Yeah. Um, So what I was trying to do there and, you know, it's tough for me to be completely honest, because that was not, you know, Anatolia was not my um, area of focus. But I really wanted to compare these texts with something loosely comparable, um, you know, it's hard to make a claim about the distinctiveness of Persian text or characteristics or noticeable characteristics in Persian texts, um, just looking at them alone. So I try I try to use these Anatolian examples uh, heuristically to say, you know, if we look at them, what can we notice about them? Do they share any common characteristics? And what do they look like when we pit them against Persianate sources? Um you know, Anatolia, the process of Islamization occurred roughly more or less about 500 years after it did in Iran. Um, so we have a case where things are, ha- similar things are happening, but later. Um, and I wanted texts that were generally written in Persian or in Arabic. So there were some linguistic similarity that we were, um, it, we are comparing apples to oranges, but you know, not something completely out there. Um, and what was interesting, because in the Persian texts, we have these, you know, really myriad literary strategies, etymologies, um, you know, sites of pious visitation and ziyada, dreams, um, Sayyids and sharifs, alids, numerous different things that kind of come out as family resemblances in this genre. But in the Anatolian sources, it was quite different. They tended to be... Um, I chose sources from the ones we have from around the 13th and 14th centuries, and they tend to focus on um, dynastic legitimacy, and Seljuk specifically legitimacy, and couch their legitimacy um, in terms of military success, in terms of genealogy, and in terms of kind of the virtues of kingly rule, which struck me as being very different from what we see in the Persianate sources. Um you could say, uh, Mimi, you should look at different sources, right? You could look at Tabakat. You could, and that's a fair critique. Um, I just chose to not do that because I wanted to look at sources that, you know, given that they are heterogeneous we could say were at least the closest possible available examples. And there aren't that many, um, but it was notable that um, they're different. They tend to be much more dynastic and less concerned with the placeness, the embeddedness in place of, with the very soil of qom with the very soil and land of Bukhara um, than we saw in the Persian texts.
1: So I think. and No, no, it's fine. I was just going to say that in a general sense, uh, that's actually logical, thinking about the fact that the Seljuks weren't from there for more than a couple of generations yeah. before these histories were constructed, whereas the people in Bukhara and Qom and Tabaristan were there, I don't know, forever.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, and I think it was an, it's an interesting contradic- uh, contradistinction to think about some of the city histories that are written in Arabic, and that's one of the reasons why... Um, They weren't a great comparison for me. You know, I didn't want to write the history, compare them with the history of Cairo or Damascus or Jerusalem, because a lot of those um, important Arab cities were metropolises, right? Cairo, Mm -hmm. Jerusalem, Damascus. Islam is a new religion, a value added to what existed there, but it is just the latest um, religious phenomenon that emerges there. Versus, you know, in the Persian cities that we have, there were cities, right? And there were other, there were Jews, there were Zoroastrians, there were Christians, but they were on a much smaller scale, it seems, um, the physical built environment of the cities than compared with some of these really important Arabic cities, uh, the Arab cities as well, too. So um, it seems like the nature of the the city almost as a unit of measure seems to be different in these Persian lands.
1: Right. And the Persian cities, of course, um, are different from the Arab cities and that those cities that you mentioned were a part of that early narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, not, exactly. not necessarily the prophet, but certainly in the next generation and the Persian cities, as they're becoming more Islamic need to, again, using your word, center themselves in the narrative and and they use these fanciful, fanciful ways to do it.
2: Absolutely. You know, and, and in a practical sense, the, you know, empire, even though it has a very greedy grasp, um, just became very large. So we do see a shift in the center of gravity, you know, in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries further east, right? You have really important scholars, um, important texts coming, you know, cultural production, religious production from further east. And yet there seems to be what I would argue in these texts, um, at least a perceived sense that these texts need to argue um, against some kind of marginality that they might be Um, perceived by individuals or sources or different forces from the ostensible political or religious center, maybe in the Arab heartlands of Arabia, in Iraq, in Syria.
1: Right. Um, I I know it wasn't necessarily the focus of what you you were studying, but did you find any more kind of real world attempts, you know, less fanciful stuff and more real world attempts to center these places within the Islamic narrative, or was it mostly in the form of these, uh, you know, uh, dreams and uh, etymologies and fanciful stories and myths?
2: You know, I think the most um, in the in the re- like real world, in the sense that we might be able to physically prove or disprove, are when we talk about people, individuals, so um, Sahaba or Tabi'un, these uh, companions or the generation following. Or whether you have Alids, right, people who claim descent um, from Ali ibn Abi Talib, um, or Sayyids and Sharifs through his sons Hassan and Hussein. So it seems like these people that, that did travel through, right, and perhaps died or lived there become. Um, kind of these embodiments of kind of of, of fadail or fazal, these these virtues, these excellences of the place. So some of them can be proved. Um, you know, when I was looking uh, in Bayhaq, there's an individual that is mentioned there as a an important person who knew Muhammad as a companion, a member of the Sahaba. And when I tried to find out more about him in local um, biographical dictionaries, I couldn't find evidence other than in Tariq Behak that he had been in Behak. Uh, you know, you would think that if he was in Behak, well, he would have traveled on to Nishapur and we, he should show up in these um, who's who of Nishapur, but he doesn't, um, you know, as as being somebody who hung out in Behak. And so there, you know, they are real world, you know, they would be like going, I don't know, to, you know, Jersey City and not going to New York, you know, it would be like going, um, you know, to somewhere in the outskirts of Medina, but not to Medina itself, right? To to not visit Medina and Mecca. So it would be strange if this individual who who studied Hadith, who taught Hadith, who knew Muhammad, wouldn't go to a very important, larger, established city like Nishapur
1: if he was already uh, going to Bayhaq. Would there be any other reason for him not to appear? I don't know. Maybe he had an enemy in Nishapur or something. I'm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, and
2: I don't know. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's like trying to find that needle in a haystack or, you know, prove somebody was there or wasn't there. And so I think, um, It's not so much that he was an important Hadith transmitter. He transmitted Hadith, it's fine. That's not, I don't think, the cause (laughs) for his fame. I think the reason why the text cottons on to him is because he is a link, a living link to Muhammad. Um, And I think that's a really important thing. These individuals become important, not necessarily because of their academic um, kind of religious prowess or prestige. It's because they are living links to the Prophet. Um, And that is a very powerful thing. So whether or not he really was there, um, to me, is almost irrelevant whether we can prove in real life whether he was there. I think what's important is he becomes embedded in that local lore and the story of what Behaq is, um, that people who knew Muhammad lived there and died there and as such kind of bring this uh, prophetic power to this small town on the far
1: eastern fringes of the islamic empire right which which almost makes it like another fanciful event too
2: yeah, it's hard to it's hard to prove, right? I mean, it's really hard to prove, but these texts don't um it's interesting, these texts do not make a concerted effort to prove the veracity of these events. Um it's almost as if this history becomes the proof text for yes, this person lived here. Um and so that was another interesting um thing to me that these texts are not trying to provide proof upon proof upon proof, um, it's the story is related and that is sufficient.
1: Well, speaking of someone who's interested in the same kind of texts, that's exactly what makes them fun to read.
2: Yes, they are. And (laughs) I think what drew me into these texts in some way were these stories. Um, You know, when you read a lot of them, some of the, you know, some of the things are, I guess, pedestrian, but interesting, you know, learning about... um, Water irrigation channels crops up again and again and again in Qom, which is a pretty arid place. And so there are things that, you know, we might be able to learn more about land tenure that were interesting, that are kind of pedestrian. But the stories that sucked me in um, were these stories, these genealogies where I read, and I thought, that can't be true, right? I mean, that just sounds bizarre. Or um, these stories of Muhammad visiting. Um, or these stories of you know Omar the first and Omar the second. But that's a bizarre dream. Why relate that here? It must be telling us something about um, some of the sectarian competitions that were going on. So I think I was pulled in to these texts by these fanciful stories more than anything else.
1: Well, some of those are absolutely fantastic, and that actually segues perfectly into my next question, which is to ask you to you know talk about a couple of your favorites. the ones that that really stuck with you. Um, And some of them are great. So I'm just going to get out of the way and let you tell some of these stories because they are super interesting.
2: (laughs) um, So I think, um, you know, one that's really interesting is about, um, well, there's a few um, that talk about Bukhara and about Qom. um, But essentially, we know, for example, one of them is uh, in Qom, you know, that the the author relates several different possible etymologies for Qom, right? That it relates to like a shepherd's shack or these other kinds of plausible, much more etymological um, origins. Um, but one of them essentially is that, you know, on the night of um, the mirage, uh, you have Muhammad, you know, uh, above Qom and, you know, talking about Qom, Yamal'ona, you know, um, stand up or oh, cursed one that involves Iblis, you know, above Qom. And it's this really kind of fantastic thing, right? You have Muhammad and you have Iblis and you have the Mirage and you have all these different paradigmatic figures saying, you know, stand up, you know, oh, accursed one. And that is why Qom is called Qom. So invoking these important individuals, right? These paradigmatic individuals and moments um, and saying, this is why it's called Qom, uh, struck me um you know similar with um Bukhara, there's a few different etymologies that the author relates um <laughs> i don't know you know for I, folks- I, oh
1: i read them. i read them
2: yeah for folks who read Persian, right i mean it's a very kind of naughty um you know, kind of basically saying like Bukhara stinks, right? Like the sewage was flowing into the canals and it's drink. And so there are these kind of playful etymologies as well too. And I looked at these other travelogues, you know, looking at muqaddasi and he doesn't say anything about this kind of, kind of playful stuff. Um, but the powerful one is that, you know, Muhammad talks about Bukhara, um, and that, you know, you're going to have on the day of resurrection, all these individuals there and talking about how this land is a blessed land. Um, with uh, filled with rubies and and you know the bodies of believers, uh, and those struck me. They were really moving, um, completely aside from whether or not we want to say you know did this is this hadith can we verify it. Um, they were beautiful, uh, and so I think those drew me in. Um, And I lean on the, you know, the work of earlier, more positivist scholars who did kind of thankless work and did try to verify these etymologies and found, you know, no, um, in some ways, bases for them, right? These may have been important because they were part of local lore. Um, Whether or not you can prove or disprove them is, is kind of beside the point. They are part of the identity of this local community.
1: Right. And that makes the writing of these histories kind of like a conscious attempt to build a local identity, even not to reflect one, but to build one.
2: But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you have places, um, you know, no place is inherently sacred, right? No plot of land on earth is obviously sacred. It's in, 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 it's in the sanctification of this place through through acts, through deeds, through telling and through relating of these stories that you build the sacredness of a place and and believe in it, too. Other places um, you have, for example, in Qom, you have Jafar al-Sadiq talking about Fatima. There's an important uh, tomb to Fatima there. She's a the sister of one of the imams. And, you know, he talks about his prediction that one of his uh, progeny will ultimately be buried here. And anybody who does Ziata or visits her or visits her grave, you know, will be blessed and will go to heaven too. So you have these premonitions that are quoted that um, important individuals have about other people who will be buried here. So sometimes it really is the very um, flesh and blood of an individual Interred in that soil that makes it a special place, and these are also kind of um moving as well they're really interesting um if you're if you're less concerned with did it really happen or not, they become very powerful arguments for why this place is a sacred, a blessed an important place
1: well, that's all fantastic, you know I really enjoy the book as a whole, uh, like I said because it Looks at history the same way I do. It looks at it not as a record of events or an attempt to reconstruct what actually happened, but as an argument for yeah. why things are the way they are or, or how things ought to be. Right? Yeah. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that fanciful stuff in there. I love the way you use it. Um, Thank so you. We, we are running up against our time limit here. So uh, I want to close by asking what you're working on now.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for having me and and thank you for this opportunity. It's a very indulgent, fun (laughs) opportunity to talk about my work. For both of us. Yes, absolutely. Uh, My current book is actually quite different, um, but really builds on, I think, my first book. And I think what drew me to my first book, you know, these notions of hybridity, these notions of belonging, these notions of what did it mean? to be both Persian and a Muslim, and why do these stories emerge? Part of that you know, was looking on the fringes of Islamic empire. And my current book looks even further, like further east, um, looking at how Muslim reformers uh, in South Asia and in Iran, actually in the modern period, look at Japan as a non-Western model of modernity. So I know it sounds like I'm coming out of left field, but I'm really not. Um, I, I'm Japanese and Welsh, and I grew up born and raised in Japan. And so I've always wanted to be able to use my ability to read and speak Japanese in a meaningful scholarly way. And, um, you know, for my first book, there was no particularly obvious way of doing that. But I became really interested in after my first book of what does it mean to be Muslim, right? I mean, it's such a contested, varied, um, phenomenon. What does it mean to be Muslim? And I was really interested when I started just digging in archives in Japan um, and just started reading widely, um, kind of not aimlessly, but just curiously. And one interesting thing that comes up um, is a lot of Muslim reformers in the early 1900s start talking about Japan. which struck me as bizarre and interesting. Japan um, is the only, Japan is an empire, Japan is what's a nation becoming an empire, and it beats Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904, 1905. And this is an important event for a lot of people around the globe, but certainly Muslim reformers are intrigued about how this tiny island nation defeats this behemoth um, of a Russian empire. Right. So it's kind of the only Eastern Asian nation with a constitution defeats this only um, massive European empire without a constitution in 1904 and 1905. And a lot of Muslims begin talking about, well, what does it mean to be Muslim and a modern and modern? Um, and I look specifically at education and the way that education is reformed and how individuals invoke the Japanese example of um, modernity and Muslimness and education as all part of this same conversation. And it was always really interesting to me that Japan as a non-Western, non-Muslim nation right, be, is invoked as, um, as a possible exemplar or a model.
1: And, and Japan, speaking as someone who uh, has the privilege of teaching world history classes, Japan is always the example that you bring up of a country that modernized very successfully, very quickly. And yeah. Ju- yeah. thinking that that would be the example for the rest of the world, I never really thought about it in terms of how people from the Muslim world look at that. But of course, when I think about it, it makes perfect sense. And you have these really interesting and
2: bizarre um, intersections of pan-Asianism. Japan becomes an empire and a particularly brutal empire after about 1925, 1926. And so you have a strange conversation um, where you have uh, pan-Islamists talking to pan-Asianists. There was also a totally bizarre and untrue rumor, but nevertheless, that spreads in Ottoman gazettes and newspapers, about how Islam, um, Japan might imminently convert to Islam, right? That Japan wow. is looking for a modern religion. Um, you know, Christian missionaries are happy to kind of talk about this as well, too, right? That Japan is ready for a modern religion that combines science and progress, and and hoping that Japan might find that in Christianity. So it's a really interesting um, conundrum for me, where you have a lot of different individuals converging. And talking about Asian-ness and modernity and religion and identity um, and invoking notions of Asia and the East in ways that don't exactly map onto our cartographic descriptions of the world. And I specifically focus on uh, Iran and on um Southeast Asian or South Asian Muslim um, reformers and educationists as part of this project. But it's been, it's intimidating and fun for me. It's like earning a second PhD um, on my own, but I've had some fantastic conversations with mentors and fellow scholars that are working on thinking about Asia broadly, right? That we we think about, we could call it the Middle East or West Asia and South Asia and East Asia. We're really talking about this enormous geographic expanse um, that we, I think in our kind of siloed academic disciplines, chop up Um, You know, you work on South Asia, I work on West Asia or the Middle East. Um, But really, I think if we can think about this as a vast and interconnected sphere, we might be able to do really interesting work. And so that's where I'm really being pulled now further, as if Bukhara wasn't further east enough, um, even further
1: east. And I can feel I can feel the connection between those two things because between the, excuse me between um, your, your current project and the book we've been discussing today because it's all about these regions that exist on the periphery of what is widely perceived to be the center and how they perceive themselves.
2: Mm Hmm. Yes. Right. And and with the advent of steam travel, right? With the advent of gazettes, with this revolution in um, the printing presses, you really have a type of interconnectedness and travel uh, that you that was difficult to kind of imagine earlier on. Iran and Japan developed diplomatic relations quite late, um, not until the nineteen, you know, well into the um, twentieth century, but. You have individuals going back and forth. You have travel literature going back and forth um, between Iran and Japan, as well as um, individuals and movements in in South Asia, right? British um, British colonial India and Japan as well, too. So I've been looking at um, zoning in on a few different individuals to. Parse out what what kind of conversations were happening about Islam and modernity, and what that meant to be Muslim and modern and Asian,
1: Wonderful. and
2: how education
1: was a part of that. That's awesome, uh, Mimi. I want to thank you for being our guest on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to reading that second book. I hope it's thank- like the first one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and thank you so much, Aaron. It really is um, absolutely my pleasure and my honor um, to have a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. Bye.